Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. From Connecticut Public Radio in New Haven, this is Seasoned. I'm Chef Plum. And I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Coming up this hour, we look at foraging from two perspectives. What approach might a chef take when foraging? In May, I got to forage for fiddleheads in the northwest part of the state with Chef Chrissy Tracy. Then we headed to Chrissy's Kitchen to make something delicious. And Robin, in all the years of Seasoned, I never thought we'd be on a riverbank foraging for food together. Well, I could have imagined us foraging, but what I could not have imagined was you having to pick dozens of ticks off my jeans. (laughs) Thanks, Plum. Later in the show, seasoned contributor Tegan Engel talks with Chris Painted Turtle Harris about how he, as an herbalist and elder in the Mohegan tribe, approaches a forage in the forest. But first, Chrissy and I head to a favorite foraging spot along the Housatonic River in search of fiddleheads. Chrissy shares her thoughts on foraging and teaches me how to ID fiddleheads at their peak. Chrissy, I'm excited to be out here with you today. It is a beautiful, gorgeous day out here. I mean, the sky is bright blue. There's a little bit of a breeze going. It's what, maybe 75 degrees? 75 degrees, nice and warm. It's sunny. It's We've got this gorgeous river behind us. It's really tranquil. I told you when we got here, I wanted to get in the river, and you said that's not <laughs> what we're doing. But there's so many plants around here. There's not really paths or anything. No. But just thinking about foraging, I look at all these plants that are just growing, and I'm like, wow, you have to know a lot of stuff to do this, don't you? What I always say is you don't have to know everything, but you have to be comfortable with what you know. Okay, I like that. Like if you're steadfast in what you know, then you can't really go wrong. Okay. So once I have properly identified anything, cross-checked it with all of my resources, I feel confident and I feel empowered to get out there and be able to identify it amongst the rest. So it's not about knowing everything, but it's about knowing what you know. So I'm going to ask you about those resources here in just a little bit, but you mentioned to our producer about foraging being sacred. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. So foraging, first and foremost, I feel like is kind of primal to who we are as humans. A lot of these lands here in Connecticut were occupied by different Native American communities who lived off of the land and what it had. So first of all, there's so much sacredness just when it comes to the cultural complexities of how we used to be as humans and what we used to do to survive. And kind of just thinking about that trial and error process that other people had to go through for me to do this for fun. You know what I mean? It's, It's kind of crazy to think of it from that lens. But aside from that, it's about having an appreciation for the world around you, the land around you, and making sure that whenever you are finding something in the wild that you want to consume, that you're only taking what you need. Don't take more than what you need. I like that. A lot of people, you know, they'll find, for example, a ramp patch and over harvest and dig up all the bulbs, not understanding that it takes ramps seven years to grow from seed which is why we are having a problem with the production of ramps at this mm-hmm. day and age. So I think it's just being very mindful about your consumption in every way and understanding that the land that you're foraging from is shared with different animals and other people that also want to have a piece of the foraging pie, right? I like that. So we're going to take a walk, I'm guessing, down this. We're going to go past that entrance gate there. Okay. And we'll make our way to the left into kind of these metal lands that will lead us out to the water and take us straight to the riverbed where I think we'll be able to find some fiddleheads. Nice. Fun things. 
Fiddleheads are fun. These will be wild carrots soon. Okay. It's just budding. It's just starting to open up a little bit. Carrot, like I think of a carrot, like a long orange thing in the ground. Yeah, except they're really small and they're like these pale yellow tubers. Okay. They're a little dry to be honest, but. All right. Not everything is equally as delicious as the next thing. Have you always been a forager? What got you started? So I grew up in the woods. My neighbors and I were just always on this hunt to explore and see what we could figure out in the wild. Now I didn't have the tools I had to really understand what I was doing back then, but I had the appreciation deeply and innately for nature and understanding what I had at my resources. So I used to like paint with the wild berries that would grow in my yard. You would paint with them? I would paint with them. And then <laughs> I would collect the wild garlic chives that grew in my yard. And my mom trusted me enough for some reason to eat it. Because uh, I didn't know what I was talking about. I was just like, it smells like onion. It, it is onion. <laughs> and that's actually true. Literally anything that smells like an allium is edible, which is really incredible. When so you if it smells it. like an onion, basically, you can eat it. You can eat it because it's in the same family. That's a great so tip. So that's where you have to use all your senses when you're out in the woods. Not for everything, but often. So yeah, what happened was once I got to college, I kind of decided to explore foraging more seriously. Being outside was always my escape. It was always, you know, what made me feel mentally in a good place. And I wanted to kind of make it more of an enriched experience for myself. Um, so that's where I started going back to square one, going back to the garlic chive and expanding my knowledge outward and just really finding mentorship, honestly, within the community. Um, I have some really great mentors, all who are scores older than me, yeah. who have helped me and shown me the way and, and really been the leaders of my pathway forward uh, within this realm. And it's really cool to see how student becomes teacher because now I'm able to teach them different things that they never focused on because most... Most foragers have a passion around a specific thing or a specific few things. Like some people just like to go hunt for mushrooms while others like to look for plants specifically. And I'm kind of like, whatever it is I can learn, I'm an open book. I want to, I want to, you know, learn all the knowledge I possibly can so that I can, A, have free food throughout the year because that's really cool. But also be like whenever I do like private experiences with cooking, I'm able to show people new flavors that they would never totally. think about. And I think that's probably my favorite thing, like being able to say, hey, you've never had this flavor before and you have no idea what it is, but just try it. Your palate's going to be tickled. <laughs> I love that. So you mentioned fiddleheads that we're looking for, of yeah. course. So it's May right now. Yep. What are some of the other things we might look for or we could find out here doing this now? So specifically because we're kind of in like a riverbed that gets flooded. It's like a flooded plain. We're not going to find too, too much along the river itself. But on the other side, there's a kind of other path that goes through a bunch of wild grass where I was able to find morels once. Oh, so I'm hoping that we might be get awesome. lucky. Okay. Outside of that, we might find like some dandelions, some yeah. wild violets. Things we can play around with. I like to use a lot of the wild flowers for like simple syrups and things like that for drinks. Wonderful. Yeah. So as a rookie forager out here with you for the first time doing this, we're looking for fiddleheads. What's a sign? Like what should I look for? So there's a couple of things. There's first of all, several different types of what we know as fiddleheads. Right. It's a fern, but this one specifically is called an ostrich fern and it's the 
choice edible of all ferns. Um, what you'll notice is they grow out of these dark brown mounds in the ground. Okay. So you'll it kind of looks like a dog dug up a little spot. Oh, okay. Right? And then you get a shoot of anywhere from 5 to 12 fiddlehead ferns growing out of that one base. And the reason they call it fiddleheads is because before the fern unfurls, it has a really nice fiddle-like tight coiled shape. Yeah, it's like coiled up, right? Yeah, it's okay. coiled up. And the, the thing that really separates the ostrich fern aside from other ferns, first of all, you'll notice that the skin is extremely smooth. Other fern species have a little bit of fuzz or hair on them. You'll notice that what's called the fertile frond is there from the year before. And all that is is once the fiddlehead comes to its full growth, it will dry up in that fiddlehead formation and it'll stay on the mound for the next year to come. And that's one of the ways you can find a fiddlehead spot. Oh, wow. Okay. Like in the summer, for example, when they're no longer around. And do they grow near the water or off the bank, just off the bank? Or they like work? to grow near the water. So anywhere that gets easily flooded, they like a lot of moisture, a lot of Amazing. sun. Partial sun is usually where you can find them. And the only other thing I would say is the very specific thing that you'll need to understand is the deep U groove that is in the stem. Not every fern has a deep, deep groove the way that the ostrich fern does. Other times they might have a little less depth or have like more of a C curve. So that's going to be a telltale sign that we found fiddleheads. All right, let's go find some. All right. Right this way. And this bank is beautiful on the bank of the river here. There's a gentleman over there fishing. He has fly fishing rod. I mean, not a bad place to be on a beautiful May afternoon, that's for sure. Right. I love the stones by the river, too. They're super smooth. You can tell where the water comes up on there, where it kind of has washed back some of the uh, leaves and whatnot, so it's almost sandy. See, most people wouldn't want to come back here. Like, what would be the reason, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, the population of Middlehead doesn't really get diminished in this area because no one really knows it exists. Yeah, we're about 20, 25 yards off the, the bank that we were just on talking, and it's definitely got a little bit thicker out here through the bush. And the plant itself we're looking for, it's going to be green. There's not other colors on it. Just green. One other identifier is that the unfurled fiddleheads sometimes have a brown papery skin on them that you want to clean off in the field. Okay. And that will be kind of like a good telltale that you found it as well. Sometimes the wind will kind of help you out and clean off some of that brown papery outer skin. Cool. I'm going to find one. <laughs> I believe in you. <laughs> oh, well, I see a bunch of ferns. <laughs> Look here. Okay. Here's one right here. Yep, the brown papery skin. You see? These guys are about you did. I don't know, eight, nine inches tall here off the ground, curled up beautifully. You can see the leaves are curled up into like a spiral in the center. Mm -hmm. How it almost, when it opens up, that's those leaves that open up from a fern, right? Absolutely. Look at this, this Spot is beautiful. On. And you can just snap them, or you can use a knife and cut them. I usually just snap it. Okay. And I only try to take one or two per mound. Okay. These are already starting to unfurl quite okay. a bit. And there's plenty. Yeah, look at all there's this. There's literally so many. This is the perfect example of one of those mounds here. So you can see how it's kind of mounded up off the ground. Yep. It's a little bit darker. Yeah. And so it's kind of darkish and like some dry leaves towards the bottom of it as it's mounded up about an inch or two off the ground. We're looking at one, two, three, four, five green stems coming out. And they're yep. about, the tallest one's probably 
I don't know, eight inches off the ground or so? Yep. So, so these you, are still prime harvest size right here, I would say. So when you take them, you take maybe the top, what, inch or so? Inch and a half? Yeah, just the top inch or inch and a half. Okay. Because the stems are equally as good in Great. terms of flavor. So I know a lot of foragers use apps and things like that on their phone so they can identify things to make sure it's safe to eat. Yeah. If they're not sure about a mushroom or a certain plant, they can look it up. Uh, what do you use? I actually use a field guide. Old school, like a little book. I, I have two field guides. One's uh, plants of the northeast. The other one is mushrooms of the northeast. Got it. So I always say, like, tailor it to the area you're in so you don't waste time combing through things that don't even exist in your area. Yeah. That way you can narrow it down. I will say, if you're going to use the apps, use them with caution. There's one that's called Picture This that's, like, pretty decent. Yeah. If you get a good, clear, clean picture of the subject itself in its natural habitat, it can get you, like, within, like, I would say 60 to 80% accuracy. Oh, that doesn't sound great. I'm 60% sure you'll be safe if you eat this. Well, here's oh. the thing. I would say use it so that you can collect samples in the field, go back home and observe research Research against other resources. Okay. Always use books. I research is undefeated. The apps aren't there yet. Though. You don't want to eat these raw, right? No, we have to blanch them. Blanching means we're going to drop them in some we're hot water for a few seconds, hot water. pull them out. Uh-huh. So... Like you said, we're only taking one or two per plant that we find here per mound. Yep. And the reason why is because we don't want it to be over harvested. We don't want them to die. How does, what does that mean? We don't want them to be over harvested. Essentially, we want this to grow back again next year. Gotcha. It'll be able to spread its seed, okay. essentially, once they fully unfurl. Great. Excellent. But Chrissy, I wanted to ask you too, these fiddlehead plants, they're actually pretty durable plants though, aren't they? They are. So I'm working on um, wilding my yard. So I might end up taking a mound from the root or two and planting them in my backyard so, so that I can wilding your yard. Yeah, I'm planting them in my own habitat. <laughs> so I don't necessarily always have to go foraging and maybe the next generation will be able to have the knowledge of these plants that are already there right in their backyard. You know what I mean? You're so um, thoughtful. Yeah, it's just it's just cool. So I did a ramp transplant last year from a very large patch that was, you know, it was the right thing to do. So there are exceptions to the rule if you're cautious about foraging and uprooting the ramp bulbs and everything. Did they come in this they year? They came back this wow. year and it was so satisfying. That's great. Good yeah. for you. These ones are a little bigger, I'm guessing because Wilding. of the sun. This one's actually a decent size. Depending on the weather conditions, it really determines the size of the fiddleheads. Yeah. Last year I was getting fiddleheads that were doubled in size. And if you buy them at the grocery store, they're usually about an inch or two in size. Oh, look at these guys. Look at these guys. This is That's just coming out of the ground. That's mound right there that you just found. That's just coming out of the ground yep. right here. That's the ideal. How long will these sprout for, Chrissy? Just until the end of May. Okay. Here, anyways. In some other places, you might get them up until, like, early June. Yeah. But Connecticut, we're done with them around end of May. What about this summer? What are some things you're looking forward to to be able to forge this summer? I got to say, I'm always most excited for mushrooms. Yeah. Chicken of the woods, head of the woods, oyster mushrooms, which actually there are oyster mushrooms popping up right now because you have your spring and your fall ones. I do really love the Japanese wine berries. I don't know if you've had them before. They're very sweet. What do they it's look like? like a very sweet raspberry. Okay. And they look like little glass beads, like little glass oh, red beads. They're I've seen really those pretty. Yeah, they're very invasive. They look kind of like a current. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Currants are not that good. No, I don't like them. <laughs> I actually make like a really nice wild blackberry barbecue sauce. Nice. So that's something I'm looking forward to again this summer. I think I've picked like seven. I'm just gonna, I'll go through quickly and pick a couple more and then we can move on from this area. Great. Christy and I picked for a few more minutes. 
Okay, it was mostly Chrissy. Then we moved to a spot where Chrissy scored morel mushrooms the year before. You know them by their ridge-filled cap. No such luck for us this time, and, and that's how foraging goes in the late spring. Sometimes you harvest a bounty, and sometimes you harvest enough fiddleheads for a side dish. We're going to take a short break here. You just heard Chef Plum's foraging experience along the Housatonic River with Chef Chrissy Tracy. Go to our show page to see photos of Plum and Chrissy's forage and fiddleheads at their peak. They're such weird and interesting-looking ferns. They really are. Later in the hour, producer Tegan Engel talks with an herbalist who is also a member of the Mohegan tribe to learn about forest foraging. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, Chrissy and I had a decent amount of fiddleheads, so you know exactly where this is going. I think a little fat with the butter and some garlic and lemon will really bring it to life a little bit. I love it. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Seasoned, everyone. I'm Chef Plum. And I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. You can build up quite an appetite foraging, even if the chef you're foraging with does most of the work. Last month, local chef Chrissy Tracy took Plum to a favorite spot along the Housatonic River to harvest fiddleheads. And nobody's out there munching on raw ferns, so let's get to the fun part. So we just got back from our adventure foraging. We got some wonderful fiddleheads that I'm excited to cook, and we're standing here in your beautiful kitchen. It feels very comfortable and, yeah. and warm to me, and you've got a nice <laughs> cutting board set up and a lemon and a whole head of garlic and a knife in front of me. Absolutely, because we got to figure out something tasty to do with these fiddleheads. Okay. Now, I like them on their own, but they are best when enhanced. Okay. And I think a little fat with the butter and some garlic and lemon will really bring it to life a little bit. I love it. So you rinse these fiddleheads off already, right? I did. Just rinse them off quickly. I mean, we are blanching them, so I didn't make it a big deal. Okay. And if there's any remaining, like, brown papery skins, they usually come off in the blanching process, too, okay. which is nice. All right, let's talk first. What do you want me to do? You got garlic, we got lemon. What can I start with? Yeah, so let's slice up, like, four cloves of garlic. Got it. Garlic is one of those things, I think, that everything delicious in the kitchen starts with. 100%. It's the, what's that smell starter pack? Yeah, right. That right. they talk about? That's absolutely right. What are you cooking? That. I'm just going to cut this up, right? Yes. I'm always going to take a little piece off to keep it flat so I don't hurt myself. Mm-hmm. And just thin pieces. Beautiful. Nice thin pieces. Got it. Looking good, Plum. Thanks. Yeah. First time with a knife. <laughs> <laughs> it's not his first rodeo. 
We're keeping them sliced like this, I'm guessing, just because if we had minced it or chopped it, it could burn before these are all done cooking. Absolutely. And also, the more you kind of mince it, the more potent that garlic flavor is. Yeah. Like, I want it to enhance. I don't want it to take away. Okay. And then half the lemon. We'll get a little lemon juice Got in it. there. And then we'll we'll use the rest of the lemon for the zest. Okay. And we'll zest over the top at the end. Hey, so let me ask you. So when you're foraging, do you have something in mind before you go? Or do you kind of make it based on what you find? I make things based on what I find or maybe what I'm inspired by through not just like my imagination, but through other cookbooks, to be yeah. honest with you. Like there's this one guy who writes a book, The Forager Chef, and he has some really interesting ways of pickling and things like that, which makes okay. it really fun. And also he really has mastered finding and mixing and matching forageables rather than just being like, oh, I have fiddleheads, I'm gonna cook this okay. specifically. Right, right. Um, so it, it, it's kind of fun, but I typically scan what I have in my pantry and try to think about the flavor of the plant or the mushroom and find the way to enhance it from there. Or if I've gone to a restaurant and experienced something before, I get very excited. So I went to this restaurant in New Haven, and they had these mushroom dumplings. And so when I went foraging for, I don't know if you've ever had black trumpet mushrooms before. Yes. Yeah, so they're in the Chanterelle family. I love them. They're so delicate, but really nice. And when I went foraging for those, I made these very delicious mushroom dumplings. That's kind of how a chef almost helps inform your way of foraging, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. All right, we got garlic sliced. We've got lemon. Do you want lemon zest or we'll zest um, in the end? We'll zest in the end, I think. Bring it all together. But at this time, we can just get those fiddleheads right sure. into the water. To so we got boiling them. water. You have salt in it or no? No salt. Okay. I'm going to drop these right in. Drop those okay. babies right in. And I have this bamboo skimmer there we for go. you. So it looks like they're almost opening up a little bit. Yeah, they do. And that's because, first of all, we didn't get all of them from the base of the stem when they're like totally unfurled. Okay. So yeah, it just kind of like opens them up a little when you blanch them. But that's okay, right? Yeah, totally fine. And we leave them in here for about a minute, right? Yeah. All right, so pull them out. Pull them out. Those are beautiful. They look okay? Yeah. So they're blanched, they're still nice and bright and green. Absolutely. Happy. All yep. right, now we're getting a pan going to get the heat on it. Yeah, we're gonna get some heat on it. Gonna get some butter in there. Okay, well, I got some butter in here melting down. We've got our fiddleheads ready to go. We've got garlic cut. We've got lemon juice ready to squirt it in there. We're going to season up. I saw you got some chili flake out here. Yeah, I have cool. some chili. We have some peppercorn medley. Yep. yep. And I always tell people, too, when I'm cooking, I, mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of this these days. When you're cooking with black pepper, finish yeah. with it. Don't cook with I it. I actually agree with you on that. Yeah, black yeah, pepper yeah, yeah. tends to burn. Mm-hmm. Especially, like, people want to put it on their steak and then grill their steak. Yeah, grill, yeah, yeah. That's when it burns the most. It does. Right, so and finish, I love with, that. Your, finish mm-hmm. with your black pepper. So butter is melting, getting happy in here. Yep. So once that butter is kind of melting a little, you can get the garlic right into the pan. Sounds like a plan. We have our garlic here. There we go. It's going to start to smell really good in here in a second. <laughs> it's funny because the garlic being cut this way will almost feel like a little garlic chip in there. Which yeah, is cool. right. It's really nice. All right. I would get some red pepper flakes in yeah, there. Yeah, okay. teaspoon, I'm guessing. Yeah, that's perfect. I'm not scared. Uh, not too much. Okay, I'm just saying. I'm like, I want you to enjoy this and this- not be like, this is too spicy. I'm Jamaican and... <laughs> Listen, I'm not afraid of spice. I judge, the, okay. I judge the New York Hot Sauce Expo every year. Let's go. Oh, no way. Bring it on. <laughs> Bring it on. So our fiddleheads, I'm guessing, they've since they've been blanched, they're probably only about 30 40% cooked. We probably have to finish them in the pan, right? Yep. So we'll want to cook them for like three to five minutes max. You can actually probably just Pro- get them in at this time. That's where I was headed. Yeah. Heck yeah. 
There you go. And then I would squeeze some lemon juice in there. Right in there, right now, huh? Right in there. You got it. And lower the heat just a tad. So when I squeeze the lemon, obviously I'm going to do it upside down in my hand like this to not get yep. the seeds in there. And Perfect. And I catch them in my hand. Yep. And I caught one. <laughs> Always. A little salt. A little salt, yep, yep. All right. And just kind of like toss those around a yep. little and those will be ready in no time and we can garnish with some lemon zest and yeah. taste it. If I ate Parmesan, I would probably put that on top too. Oh, okay. You just well, like it adds a nice little... Get that fat in the background? Yeah, yeah. These guys probably need about a minute or so in here. Yep. Beautiful. Let them hang, let them get happy. Let them get happy. So I would tend to cook these similar to what you're doing, but I wouldn't cover them. No. Uh, right, because you don't want them to turn that weird kind of army green color. You don't, and also the other thing is um, they can get kind of mushy if they're yeah. overcooked, which right. is a delicate balance. Totally. You know? And when you put that top on there, what you're actually creating then is basically a rainstorm. Exactly. So the steam that rises out of there is the water that's dissipating and it becoming a gas. So at yep. 212 degrees, water becomes a gas. So what happens is if it can't escape, it's going to land on top of right. the lid, cool down a little bit, and then drip back down in there. Exactly. I can't tell if they're quite there yet. What do you think? I think they're there. Yeah, you want a little crunch on them still? Yeah, I want a little okay. crunch. Uh, let's finish with a little lemon zest, right? Yeah. You got this uh, zester. Maybe a little black pepper to finish it. What do you think? Yeah, a little black pepper. Perfect. All right. Mm. All right, let me get some fork. This is amazing. We have these beautiful foraged fiddlehead ferns. It smells amazing, doesn't it? Yeah. I hope you like them. I, you know, I, I like them. I'm a veg girl, though. If you're not a vegetable person, you're not going to like any vegetable, wild or yeah. otherwise. <laughs> All right, here we go. Mm. Mm hmm Yeah? The crunch is really nice. It's right? good, yeah. The mm -hmm. crunch is really nice on it. It doesn't feel mushy at all. It feels clean. It's very clean. It tastes like spring. I always tell everybody yeah. I think they taste like spring. Like, how would you describe the flavor plum? Clean, mineralistic almost, right? Yeah. It has a little bite to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was worried the stem would be a little bitter. It's not at all. It's not, no. Yeah. Because we picked them at the it. right size. It's like eating a, it's like a lawn, a field after it's been cut. <laughs> That's what I think of. So me, what I've come to the conclusion of is, to me, I feel like it tastes like a mix of a pea, a mm. little asparagus, and a tiny bit of broccoli. That's what I get from the You flavor. just picked all the green vegetables. That, that's a common, I'm not alone here. It's very, uh, it has its own flavor. It's really delicious. So Chrissy, we just did kind of a simple saute with these, right? Mm -hmm. But what are some other things we could do with this? So I've actually prepared it as a tempura fiddlehead yeah. with teriyaki soy glaze that was mm. really delicious. I have like kind of a pasta situation that I create with them and I kind of make like a beer blanc sauce with it and do it up in a little white wine and it's very delicate very delicious mm -hmm. and then the other thing i really like doing with them is i have like this toasted chickpea dish that i do with the fiddleheads sauteed in red wine vinegar and i serve it with a roasted red pepper vinaigrette and it's just it's really delicious that sounds great yeah is it weird it feels like i kind of want to make what we just did right here and i almost want to like puree it like a hummus you can do that and then, absolutely and then put it on like some nice bread or focaccia or like a flatbread and something yep. like that way people and then be like we just made this out of the woods yeah people have made pestos with it so that's also a cool thing to do yeah these are phenomenal i want to keep eating them so <laughs> but Chrissy, thanks for having us this has been really really fun i've learned a lot thanks for i can't coming. wait to check my yard and see if i have any these growing but mm -hmm. really fun to do this and the experience of picking something in the wild bringing it here and now we're eating it and turned it into this pretty awesome wild to table <laughs> i love it thanks for being here thanks chrissy
That was Chrissy Tracy cooking with Chef Plum in her cozy kitchen, and it really is cozy. If you haven't seen it on Instagram, Chrissy lives in a log cabin in the woods. It's a mushroom forager's dream. She's writing her first cookbook right now. It's called Forage and Feast, and it'll be out next year. Follow at Eat with Chrissy on Instagram for updates. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. And I'm Chef Plum. Chrissy mentioned the forager chef as one of her inspirations. That would be James Beard award-winning chef Alan Burgo out of Minnesota. His site has lots of recipes for all kinds of wild plants foragers would love. If you're curious, visit foragerchef.com. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, a conversation with herbalist and Mohegan elder Chris Painted Turtle Harris. Foraging mindfully, you're going to find a heck of a lot more than if you were foraging just for the heck of it. You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Chef Plum. And I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. In the first half of the show, you heard a chef's approach to foraging. For the second half, producer and contributor Tegan Engel spotlights another approach to foraging, and it's rich with purpose and tradition. When I arrived at the Mohegan Reservation, Chris painted Turtle Harris, a pipe carrier, which is a ceremonial leader of the Mohegan people, was sitting at a picnic table, drum in hand, singing a traditional gathering song. I joined him at the table to learn about how he approaches foraging in the forest as an herbalist and a person native to this land. So that was called a gathering song, and it says Wami Skitumpak, which is the old way of saying all my relations. Uh, Nanu is called the is the grandmothers, and Okanas are the grandfathers. So we invite them all to come and sit with us. Mm. Thank you for welcoming them here as we start this conversation. So, in terms of foraging, I'm curious if you could share an earliest memory that you have of foraging. You know, it's funny. My in- earliest memory is in Uncasville. I grew up in Niantic. My grandmother piled us grandkids in the car and we used to pick blueberries up here on the reservation. I don't really remember where, but I do remember all the kids having their little can and going out and filling it with blueberries. And I was probably maybe five. So that's my earliest memory of that. I learned first foraging basically for snack purposes. I was a growing boy and I was out in the woods and we were taught not to eat everything we saw, but we were taught the few things that we could eat, you know. Mm-hmm. After you got excited about foraging for food, right. how did you start learning about foraging for either ceremony or for medicine? You know, this is an interesting question that you even bring it up when you first asked me to 
share on this topic. I was questioning the difference between foraging and gardening. Probably one of the main differences is the lack of space for gardening leads me to foraging. The other thing is, is a lot of gardening stuff takes up more space and with less yield than we're capable of doing in our own space. Mm -hmm. So, all right, well, if I can't grow it here, where can I get it without buying it? It just became a necessity of, all right, so what is it, what am I looking for? Where does it grow and what is it like? And then put on the spiritual side of the whole piece of foraging, of going out and looking for that place. Mm. And all that entails with asking creator, here, show me where this might grow. I mean, I know it loves the sun or I know it loves the shade or, you know, any of those signs that draw me into a a spiritual question yeah what is the actual difference being in my garden in my yard we have 13 raised beds in the yard Mm. or going out into the woods that's where i do most of my foraging is in the woods what is the spirit that comes to that what am i hearing when i'm walking in the woods as opposed to being just in my garden Mm -hmm. it's easier for me to be in that spiritual place when i'm walking in the woods than in my own space I totally understand what you're talking about. And could you describe a little bit, like, as you're approaching the forest and you're getting connected to your heart, what what does that look like? What is that practice for you? So first of all, I ask the question, where am I going and what am I doing? Typically, I will smudge and try and release any of that negative thoughts or feelings or energy. Smudging for me is usually a cleansing. I light some white sage on fire and then blow it out and use the smoke to cleanse my aura per se a uh, new age word i guess <laughs> but it cleanses you know just around me and just prepare me to be open into the woods we are what we eat that's my belief and if i'm out there whatever i'm doing whatever i'm handling if i put a negative energy into that or if i'm carrying a negative attitude it goes into my food and then what am i doing with it i'm eating it and it's going back into me. It's not healthy. I wish I could say I did that at every meal. I try to be thankful of every meal and try to be uh, engaged in my food. Where did it come from? Who prepared it? But I don't always do that. It's just not practical, I guess. But it's a great place to consider and to be, you know, and I always try to have that when we're foraging. When you're walking and you're sort of being open to what creator wants you to find or to show you can you describe a little like what does that experience look like a lot of times it's not just the act of going out and picking i'm also trying to consider you know what's next um i practice native spirituality so i when i go into the woods i look to the east and i look to the south and the west and the north you know respectively and realize where what i'm looking for likes to be Mm. Say I'm uh, going out looking for blueberries. Say I find them on the south side of a hill. That's an important thing to pay attention to when you're spiritually minded and say, all right, the south side is the side for me. It's about love, about fire. It's about summer. It's about all the uh, things that happen in that southern direction. As opposed to if it was growing on the north side of the hill, it may not have that same love ingredient Mm -hmm. so each of the directions has a meaning and a place and an emotional feeling to it so where i find a plant connects to that meaning yeah in other words i connect the spiritual uh, path into the action of forging yeah and i love that because you're also showing how 
it's this relationship that you're learning from the land and from the plants as you harvest them. So there's like this exchange. That's exactly true. And the lessons are always different, but it's about the lesson. It's not about going out there and finding, oh, I'm out here finding food. I could be starving to death, I suppose, and needing that food. But I would be more, I'd be willing to bet anything that foraging mindfully, you're going to find a heck of a lot more than if you were foraging just for the heck of it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why that is, but I know it happens. I know it works because I've done it. Yeah, yeah. So a part of that mindfulness to foraging, you said, was that you you offer some prayers before you start. I wonder if you could share with us what are the prayers that you offer before you're, you're starting? I try to keep it simple, you know, like creator, you know what's in my mind. You know what's in my heart. Help me go about this in, in an open-minded way. Help me not carry any of my negativity into this journey. Mm. And then, of course, please help me find what I'm looking for. The other side of that, though, is God knows what I'm looking for, and he knows it. So I know darn well that if I'm supposed to find it, I'm going to find it. Mm -hmm. If it's not there, then for some reason I'm meant to look somewhere else. Mm. When you're connecting with the plants, do you feel like you're in relationship with them? I can say that I have been in relationship with plants. I don't know if you ever heard of motherwort mm -hmm. um, or lion's heart. They call it lion's heart, so the men won't be offended by it being called motherwort. Isn't that funny? I have a relationship with that plant. I actually went on a retreat and we were invited to just go out and spend the day looking at plants and find one that calls to you. And Motherwork called me mm. and I had a journey with it. I laid with it, sat with it. Mm. And now, uh, you know, it's the first plant I can see anywhere. I can pick it out just about anywhere. So, yes, I, I can connect. I've also done a couple scientific things that aren't so connecting with just walking in the woods is that I do know that plants have feelings and are able to uh, actually put that out there it's a special tool where they listen to the plants singing and you can actually you know inflict pain on the plant and it'll scream knowing all that kind of changes forest foraging you almost have to like forget how much they feel when you go to pick them to go full circle with that is not to forget the thank you it's great to find them, but don't forget to thank them. You know, and a lot yeah. of times I carry a little pouch of tobacco, and I'll offer a little pinch of tobacco near the plant I pick. And I also uh, try to commit that to memory, where this plant lives, so that I can find it next time. Yeah. Can you share what is it about the offering of the tobacco? Why do you do that? When it goes back to that sad place, you know, when you're you're going to take a life, or or even just taking, it, whether you're not taking it for life. If you give a gift, you're supposed to get a gift, right? Isn't that something that we were taught when we were kids? Well, the gift isn't what we always see. So I want to open my heart and my mind up to what that gift looks like. So I make an offering just to let the plant know that I'm, I'm in appreciation. Mm. I don't know what you have for me, but thank you for being there. You know, yeah. Whether I take anything from you or not. Yeah. You know? We had a medicine woman, Gladys, and she did some writing in there. You know, was Gladys Tantaquidgen? Glad, yes. Mm. There was a couple of things in her book that really stand out to me. Three things, actually. One is you never pick on the dog days of summer. Second one is you never take the last of anything, which we should know that, but not everybody practices that. Mm -hmm. Oh, look at all those ramps. Mm. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm going to pick them all. And guess what? They ain't coming back next year. 
the cardinal rule to me is do no harm. So yeah. if I pick this plant, is it going to help or is it going to hurt? One of our lines says, if you're lucky enough to have a maple tree in your yard, and I went, wow, that's pretty interesting that for several hundred years in this area, there was no trees. They took down every tree to build houses. The people who colonized here. Yes. When she wrote that, if you're lucky enough to have a maple tree, I didn't live in that time. I don't even know what that looks like. So I try to also invite that in, you know. What was it like for people to have to deal with that? And how does it affect them and me, you know, because I'm a product of the people who went through that, right? Mm -hmm. So how can I turn that around? In terms of that, I was actually curious about, you know, you're a sovereign nation and we're sitting on reservation land right now, which is held in trust by the U.S. government, and then we're surrounded by... U.S. The rest land. Of the U.S. <laughs> stolen land, right? And as someone who spends a lot of time really being in, in relationship with the land, with the plants, physically, spiritually, can you share a little just of what is that experience for you of living in that context? I go back to talking about all the trees being gone for several hundred years and not knowing what that looks like. So it's hard to have even ill will toward those people that went before me for taking away our land or or introducing these non-indigenous plants. You know, who am I going to attack for that? It's all done and gone. I have to make the best of what's right here, right Mm -hmm. now. And if that comes from a non-indigenous plant, then so be it. My latest thing on my radar has been the Phragmites. They yes. came in and they basically took the habitat away from the cat nine tails. Why is that? There's got to be a purpose for that. I don't believe that God just carelessly throws things around. You know, we're going to kill all the cat nine tails so we can have Phragmites, which I have no idea why, because mm-hmm. to me it doesn't have any purpose. Yeah. So I can draw that lesson into my own heritage. I do try to advocate for the lesser plants, the plants that belong here. Yeah. It's a fight. You know. My wife has the fight more than I <laughs> That's another good thing about foraging is because I can go out in the woods and find stuff where is my wife in her 13 beds is continually weeding and weeding mm-hmm. and weeding, pushing out all them aliens. Right. Yeah. It's an interesting question. I've thought about that question of the Phragmites, and I know where I live, it happened because... People put, I think, some gates, you know, where the salt water comes in and mixes with the fresh water. Mm-hmm. And because of the stopping of the salt water coming in, it actually allowed the Phragmites to take over. And right. so it was human action right. that actually created a habitat that then let this invasive plant exactly. take over. Right. And so I think there's both the what are the lessons that we have to learn from the plants mm-hmm. and also what is our responsibility as humans right. to not cause harm. And it's holding all of the complexity of both of those things. Right. People talk about conservation. And for indigenous people who have had really sustainable practices about not harvesting too much and harvesting in a way that is really responsible and actually stewards and helps the forest environment, not harming it. What is your idea of conservation or even stewardship? A lot of times the, the damage has already been done. Do I want to fix it or do I want to conserve it the way it is? That's a big, big undertaking. It really is. So I just do it in my small sections where I go. And if each person took notice of that when they went foraging, there'd be plenty for all of us. So if we each 
took our part. Here I am, one of them guys. Say, I used to hate watching people get on TV. And say, if each of us did our part. <laughs> but the reality is if each of us do our part, we can live together and live with these plants. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with me and mm. share about this. It's really, really special, and, and I really appreciate it. So Katup Tom Tamaimu is thank you to everybody. Katup Tom Tamaush is thank you to one person. Katup Tom Tamaush. 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 Katup Tom Tamaush. Katup Tom Tamaush. Hey, you did it. Thank you. can speak Mahegan. (laughs) That was Chris Painted Turtle Harris. He's a ceremonial pipe carrier and member of the Council of Elders of the Mohegan Tribe. We spoke at Fort Shantuck Park on the Mohegan Reservation. Forest foraging is wonderful, but for me, it involves having to make a special trip out of New Haven. Instead, I've been foraging more and more right in my own neighborhood. My taki and oyster mushrooms that I find in the park or on street trees, red sumac berries that I make pink lemonade with, or even dandelion greens and purslane for a salad. Finding free, wild-growing food in the city gets my heart racing, and my culinary juice is flowing, especially when it comes to berries, and most especially mulberries and juneberries. As a kid, my mom would pluck mulberries from trees for me, but it's only as an adult that I actually started to like them. They look similar to a blackberry, but they grow on tall trees, making them a lot harder to pick. Red mulberry trees are native to the northern U.S. and considered an endangered species. Black and white mulberries are invasive to this area, but lucky for us, all of them are safe to eat. It's pretty easy to find mulberries. You don't even need to look up at the branches just down at the sidewalk. When it's smeared with dark purple juices and the berries look like skinny blackberries, you have found your spot. Just tap gently, y'all. Don't hurt the tree. After years of picking mulberries, my family and I discovered a really great trick. Instead of picking them one by one, we spread a huge tarp on the ground and gently knock the branches with a broomstick until most of the ripe berries come tumbling down. Gather up the edges of the tarp and tip the berries into a bucket to carry home. Last year, we got a whole five gallon bucket full of mulberries. Yum, a bucket full of berries. Mm-hmm. All right, round two. June berries, on the other hand, need to be picked by hand one by one. You might know this tree as Saskatoon berry or service berry. I have a large one right in my front yard and only discovered a few years ago that we could enjoy these berries as much as the birds do. 
They look like a blueberry, but they grow on a stem more like a cherry, and they taste like a cross between a blueberry and an apple. Once I have a bowl of freshly picked berries, I soak them for a few minutes in water with a little bit of salt. That helps get the bugs off, and I pick out any of the leaves and twigs. I give them another rinse, and then I drain them, and I put them out on cookie sheets and in the freezer, and then I tip them into bags for storage. I like June berries and mulberries fresh, but I usually prefer them in pies and jams. A touch of sweetener and a squeeze of lemon helps to round out their flavors really well. When I forage in the city, I always make sure to ask for permission when I'm picking on somebody's private property. I try to sweeten the deal by offering up some jam or even a berry-filled pastry. Frozen puff pastry makes baking with these berries super easy. I cook up some berries, season them to taste, and then I stir in a few spoonfuls of cornstarch that I mix up with some water, simmer it a little bit until it bubbles and thickens, and that makes a delicious compote or pie filling. Once this is cool, you can fold it into a sheet or even some squares of puff pastry, bake them till they're golden, and it makes a wonderful, shareable treat. Go to ctpublic.org recipes to get my recipe for hand pies. My neighbors love seeing their berries in a pastry or jam jar and not on the sidewalk, which is a plus for all of us. To forage safely in a city neighborhood or park, look up pictures to make sure what you're picking is safe to eat. There's some really good plant identification apps out there. I like to use Seek or Picture This. Happy picking, y'all. I'm Tegan Engel. And I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. If you're feeling inspired and would like to connect with a foraging community, Connecticut has a foraging club. We talked with its founder, Amy Demers, for an episode in 2021, and the club is still going strong. Search Connecticut Foraging Club on Facebook for updates on foraging walks and classes. And visit our show page, ctpublic.org seasoned, to see our foraging photos. Seasoned is produced by me and Katie Tolerski, Meg Dalton, Catrice Claudio, Stephanie Stender, Tegan Engel, Meg Fitzgerald, Sabrina Herrera, and our summer interns are Stacey Addo and Carol Chen. To keep up with the latest on Seasoned, follow at CT Public on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And we're at WNPR on Twitter. Or follow the hashtag SeasonedCT on all platforms. I'm Chef Plum. Catch past episodes of Seasoned wherever you get your podcasts. And subscribe so you never miss an episode. We'd love it if you rate us on Apple Podcasts. It'll help other food lovers find us. Thanks for listening, everybody. 